the rapture. Is it really in the Bible? Didn't some guy just make up the doctrine? The word isn't in the Bible? And if there is a rapture, when will it take place? These are the questions we're going to consider in today's podcast. Welcome to the Weekly Wholesome Words Podcast, where we examine the sound doctrine in God's Word for the specific purpose to know Christ and His things, gain the renewing of our mind that we might prove what is His good, acceptable, and perfect will in our lives, that all things would work together for His purpose. I'm Josh Strzelecki, pastor and teacher of Twin Cities Grace Fellowship. Join me in this episode as we look at the issue of the rapture. Well, we continue our series on the rapture, where we're taking multiple episodes to cover our resurrection, which is commonly known in Christianity today as the rapture. And we've examined uh, some necessary things uh, that serve as kind of a, a frame of reference and a foundation for uh, the rapture and the necessity of a mystery resurrection. And to segue from that into what we're going to take a look at in this episode, that is the differences of or differences in resurrections, um, we're going to look at a, a passage in First Timothy chapter three. First uh, Timothy chapter three. Uh, is an intimate epistle that the Apostle Paul writes to his son in the faith, uh, Timothy. And he's speaking about the things that are supposed to take place in the church of the living God, the, the pillar and ground of the truth. And he says in verse 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And godliness itself is not a mystery, but there's a mystery of godliness. God is doing something in connection with godliness today that wasn't made known before. It was it was hid in God. And we find that content that was once hid in God in Paul's epistles particularly, specifically. And in verse 16, he says, and without controversy, there's no question about this. There's no controversy about the greatness of the mystery of of godliness. Well, what is that? He begins to describe something that looks like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, that looks don't get me wrong, that looks very much like a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what mystery is that there to that? The, the, the prophets had proclaimed, the scriptures had proclaimed that God was going to be manifest in the flesh, be justified in the spirit, he would be impeccable, perfect, he would be seen of angels, as it were, if you want to describe it that way, preached unto the Gentiles. That was all in accord with God's program with Israel. At first, they were not to go to the Gentiles, nor enter into any city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Before the Lord ascends to heaven, he gives them 
He tells them to stay in Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem they are to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, and go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth to the to the Gentiles. That's that's Genesis twelve. In thee Abraham's seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The blessing of the world would go through the nation of Israel, as Christ would be their king, and they would be priests of the Most High, mediators between God and man in the kingdom. They would be preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And that's the most peculiar one. That sets the trigger to to see the, the mystery element to godliness. The mystery element to godliness puts the reception of the Lord Jesus Christ up into glory as last. This is a order here of, of things, at least from first to last. God manifest was manifest in the flesh, received up into glory. What is being described here, beloved, is a description of the power and the glory and the effectual working of godliness in this dispensation of the grace of God. Paul says over in Colossians 1, uh, at the end of the chapter, as he talks about the, the mystery of God and the dispensation of the grace of God, and the whole purpose of that is, is for the, the purpose of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, God manifest in the flesh. The effectual working of God's word today and, and the renewing of our mind puts on display God in our flesh. Not God by our flesh, but God in our flesh, God in our mortal body. Details of that are spread out, sprinkled all over Paul's epistles, primarily the mechanics of it in Romans chapter 8. When we mind the things of the Spirit, we become spiritually minded, and the fruit of that spiritual mind is life and peace, but also by those things of the Spirit, the Spirit quickens our mortal body, this dead body, as it were, according to the flesh. He quickens our body, and is able, therefore, by His things, energizing and quickening our mortal body, to use it to the praise of His glory. God manifest. In the flesh. It's the mystery of godliness of God's things manifest in us. It's a tremendous thing. And you can go down the list. And the last one for the church, the body of Christ, the the pillar and ground of the truth, what God is doing in the world today through the Gentiles, particularly the church, the body of Christ, as the representatives of our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be received up into glory. That is not something the little flock, the believers of Israel, were looking toward, were looking for. They were not looking to be received up into glory. Matthew chapter 6, when he, the Lord teaches the disciples, you have the disciples' prayer. The, the whole issue there is he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in heaven on the earth. 
The God of heaven is going to set up his kingdom on the earth, Daniel chapter 2. Not received up, but all that's coming down. And they wait for the Lord to come to the earth. That's the basics and fundamentals of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. The Ancient of Days is going to sit on his throne and the man of sin will come before the throne lying prostrate, being destroyed, and it's going to be flaunted in the face of the adversary when he strips that kingdom from that last kingdom of kingdoms according to Daniel chapter 2 in those times of the Gentiles destroying that last king and giving the throne of his glory to his son, the king of kings and lord of lords. And his kingdom will be established forever with judgment and justice. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's what's coming. Not what you are received up to. The mystery of godliness is what believers today is our resurrection. It's our resurrection, our Blessed hope is to be received up into glory. That's the gathering together of the Lord in the air as we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, may that be a segue into the differences of resurrections. Now, I want to show you here the order of resurrections in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Lord, or it's not the Lord, excuse me, the Apostle Paul uh, proves the resurrection from the dead by declaring the Davidic covenant and declaring the necessity of uh, the one who would enflesh himself in the seed line of David, that he would resurrect and he would subdue all things unto himself. And so he is bringing this up and he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 says, But every man in his own order, speaking of the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits, Christ the first one to rise again from the dead, never to die again. He says, Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. They that are Christ at his coming. That's speaking of when he returns to this earth. Notice his, his coming. He's coming not were received up to him, he's coming. Then in verse 24 it says, Then cometh the end. That's a third resurrection. Christ, he is the resurrection and the life. He's the, he's the first fruits. He's the firstborn from the dead. Then you have afterward they that are Christ that is coming, the first resurrection. Then cometh the end. And then cometh the end is the second resurrection. And really... It's a, it's a resurrection of the dead, all the lost dead, that hadn't been judged yet to partake in the second death. And he goes on to describe that after he subdues all things and puts all things under his feet, he's going to destroy the last enemy, which is death, and put it into death. He will conquer death by death as all those that are not in Christ will suffer for all eternity the second death and eternal consciousness 
of the wages of their sin. Now, why is that so important? Because all that Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15 is prophetic. It's, it's made known. It's not a mystery. But when you get later down in the chapter, he says in verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, be, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. We, the members of the body of Christ, are going to be the first part of the fulfillment of death being swallowed up in victory when we'll be changed. Now, let's talk about the differences of these resurrections. Okay, And next episode, we'll deal with the similarities of these resurrections. And the significant one that we're going to see in regards to differences is, is we're not going to be taking a look at the, the resurrection of Christ so much. And we know when that one took place after his death burial, and then you had his resurrection on the third day. But the one when he comes to this earth, and another one in regards to us being received up in glory. We see a difference in, in those things, and I've brought those out already. We can compare and contrast 1 Corinthians 15 to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Those that are his at his coming, his coming to this earth, not just appearing, not just the revelation, but his coming. And the difference with us is we're going to be received up. So he's coming to this earth, he's being received up. There's a distinction. We need to rightly divide those things. They are not the same resurrection. One other thing that we looked at before, and I want to draw out with you real quick, and the last time I didn't have the verse off my head, hopefully I memorize it um, by the time I look it up now again, is the issue of being saved from the day of wrath and the issue of of Jacob's trouble and they'll be delivered out of it. All right. Uh, that text is Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. He says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. The day of the Lord, the day of wrath. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. The reason why it's Jacob's trouble, the things that Jacob was troubled with earlier on in his life, uh, it wasn't until he saw the the, the commonly known story, Jacob's Ladder, the Lord's Ladder that Jacob gets to see, angels ascending and descending. He says, surely this is the house of God, uh, the Bethel concept there. But before all that, Jacob had some trouble. And it's that trouble that is going to be impressed upon the nation once again. And he says, it is even the time of Jacob's trouble. He says, but he shall be saved out of it. And what he saw there is what's going to come to fulfillment 
out there in the future. That day is great. There's none like it in regards to the trouble. But then in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the the kingdom, the establishment of it, and him coming. And Jacob will be saved out of it. That means they go through it, and then they come out of it. They go through it, and their salvation's in it, but they're not delivered from it. They're not delivered prior to it. And we have a resurrection that speaks about the issue of waiting. And we wait for him to be delivered from the wrath to come. Now let's look at that verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And he says in verse 9, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Notice the, notice the, the, the emphasis, and the wait for his Son from heaven. Now, yeah, when he comes, he's going to come from heaven to this earth. But that's a specific detail there. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. It's as good as done. What's the mechanics of that deliverance for those that will be here? And even for those that have died in Christ during this dispensation of grace in which we live, we're, we're not a part of that. We're not waiting for his coming to be resurrected. We're going to participate in a resurrection prior to the day of the Lord. And this is what's spoken of in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Now look at how he describes the coming of the Lord here. He doesn't say what we're going to look at the, the difference here. I know I made the, the big deal over in 1 Corinthians 15 to his coming. They wait for him to come to this earth. We're waiting for him to come, but not to this earth. Look what happens. Shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now that's a difference too. The, the, the little flock, the little flock who's alive during the day of, the, of wrath, they are going to enter into that rest then those that are his at his coming will be resurrected. The, the saints of old fulfill the extra days there in Daniel chapter 12. In other words, those that are alive will prevent them that are asleep in regards to Israel's program. But not so with our resurrection. We which are alive remain in the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, those that are asleep are going to rise from the dead first. Then we which are alive remain will be... Look, well, look what the text says. He says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, received up, 
together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, not to his coming and meet him, as we're going to see prophetically on this earth, but we meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're caught up together with them. They go first, then we're caught up together. That's not true prophetically. With Israel on this earth, when that kingdom comes, they enter into it, then there's a resurrection. Daniel said he'll stand in his lot in those days. But there will be those that are alive that get to see that kingdom first, as it were. That's a difference. So there's a difference in regards to his coming to this earth and there's a resurrection. There's a difference in regards to us being received up into glory, being caught up together with them in the clouds, and the order in regards to those that are asleep, we shall not prevent them. They will go first and we'll be caught up together with them, which is in contrast to what will happen in the resurrection when he comes to this earth. Now, let's further validate this issue of being caught up together with him in the air and how that's different to what he teaches prophetically. I want you to come all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And what we're going to see here in Deuteronomy 30 is what is commonly known as the Palestinian Covenant. And that's an okay way of describing it. It's the Jehovah Covenant. It's what God's going to do. And it's in view of Deuteronomy 28 when he gives the blessings and curses of the law contract. In Deuteronomy 29, he basically comes along and he says he's going to make a covenant beside the covenant that he made with them in Horeb. That is the law contract. He basically spells out in Deuteronomy chapter 29 uh, that they need to consider their latter end and recognize that they're going to deny him and they're going to reject him and the curses are going to come upon them. And uh, there's going to be great anger that the Lord is going to kindle in regards to all that is written in the book of the law. And then in chapter 30, verse 1, it says, And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee. What are those things? The blessing and the curse. Deuteronomy 28. He says, Which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, because they're going to be scattered among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul, it's going to be the believing remnant, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will, and will return and gather thee from all the nations where the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Where is he going to gather them? He's going to gather them in the land. Not looking to go up. They're looking to go back to their homeland, the land he promised them, the land they promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now look at look what he says here, verse four: If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, that, that's all the nations, no matter how far you go. It's as if you were looking out and you see where the the, the heaven reaches the horizon and if you were to keep going and keep going to the uttermost parts, outmost parts of, of heaven, the farthest reaches of the nations, he says, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee 
And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers, here it is, possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And he goes on. Where is he going to gather them? Not up, but in the land. That's exactly what the scripture says. Now come with me to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. I want you to see this is exactly what the Lord echoes. And it's a passage that so many people think describes the rapture of the church, the body of Christ. But that's a mystery. That's not described in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. That's not described, although there's similarities, and hence why one would confuse it with the rapture. But you have to keep things rightly divided. That rapture is not revealed but to the Apostle Paul. The Lord is describing the fulfillment of that covenant back there in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 1 and following. Now he's recounting these the order of the events that are going to transpire in the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. And he gets down to the end in verse 29 of Matthew 24. Well, before we look at that, let's take a side note and look at where he's at when he's teaching this. Look at Matthew 24, look at verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See not all these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. By the way, he's not referencing AD 70. The dispensation of grace had started by that time. But look what he goes on to say, verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives. Why is this so important? Why is the Mount of Olives so important? Well, if we go back, and we brought this up before, let's look at it again, to Zechariah chapter 14. We have him describing something that's going to prophetically be fulfilled of Zechariah. And when he comes, he's confirming the promises made in the fathers. We read about that in Romans chapter 15, he came as a minister of the circumcision to confirm those promises. The validity of the, the, the veracity, the immutability of them. You cannot just spiritualize them. So he says in Zechariah 14 verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. It's not just what took place with Nebuchadnezzar. That had already taken place by time Zechariah writes. He's describing something else, another time in which the city is going to be divided and Israel taken. He's talking about the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, when they're sold. The Antichrist sells them to other nations. And they're divided. And he's going to come and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And he fought for them with Joshua. And they took the land. But he's going to accomplish it. He's going to fulfill it. What Joshua and Israel didn't fulfill back then. But look at verse 4. He says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. It's going to be a, a valley of refuge for his believers. And the half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward 
the south. Now, you can go on and read more. But where is he going to return? Where is his feet going to rest? On the Mount of Olives. Where is he going to stand? On the Mount of Olives. In that day, he's going to fight for him, and he calls all the nations to gather the, 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 the battle of Armageddon, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And he stands on the Mount of Olives. So here he is on the Mount of Olives when the Lord, his first advent, and he's here speaking to them when there's not going to be one stone left upon another, not 80, 70, but his second coming. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples, Matthew 24, verse 3, came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And of the end of the world? That's what they have in view. And rightly so. And he doesn't come along, well, this is all spiritual and figurative and allegorical. No, he, he lines up with the law of the Psalms and the prophets. And Jesus answers sin to them, and he goes on and he starts talking to them. Now, where does he line up with Deuteronomy 30? It's not until you get to the end of verse to, to verse 29 and following. So look at verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the great tribulation days, the last three and a half years, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Everything is going to be turned dark so that all that the world can see is his power and his great glory, his light bursting forth in darkness, just like at creation. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. He's the light. He's the light of the world, shining in the darkness, just like at creation, spiritually just like when he came. Spiritually, just like how he's doing now, but physically in that second coming. And he, now notice verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect. What is he going to do in Deuteronomy 30? He's going to gather them from all nations under heaven, and gather him into the land. He's going to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, to the out, utmost part, the outmost part of heaven. Isn't that what Deuteronomy 30 said? This, he's, he's, he's bringing up the Palestinian covenant, the Jehovah covenant. That's what he's going to do. And you have the mechanics here that he's going to use angels to do that. But they're not being received up into glory. They're being gathered over to their land. That's a difference. That's a difference. And so, of course, you see a trumpet. You see an angel. And so there are similarities. And we're going to deal with those similarities and why those similarities are there. But we must recognize the differences. This is after the tribulation of those days. We're delivered from the wrath to come. They're saved out of it. They're gathered over there in the land where Christ stands on the Mount of Olives. We're received up in the glory, in the air, 
to be with him there forever. These are different resurrections. One is the mystery resurrection, hidden God now revealed to the Apostle Paul. The other is prophetic in regards to the nation of Israel. Both grand and magnificent, both necessary to bring about his eternal purpose in Christ, but different in their timing, different in their geography, different in their order. They are different. Well, in the next episode, we're going to take a look at their similarities because we must not neglect or reject that there are great similarities. And of course there would be because we're dealing with resurrection and the resurrection, whether it be of Israel in the time to come or the resurrection of the church, the body of Christ, comes from the power, the one who's declared to be with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead who is the resurrection and the life. The Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of both and therefore there are similarities. And even though ours resurrection is prior to the wrath to come, there's something God's going to do in our connection with it that signals his wrath to come. And therefore, there's a connection between the beginning of the wrath to come and what he's going to do during the wrath to come that he's going to sound off on in regards to our resurrection. And then we'll look at the purpose of it all. Why do we need to know the distinctions and the similarities of the resurrections? That's what's left to come. Until next time, look up.